Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, cyber dollars create cyber tensions for CISA in the new budget deal. I think that causes some tension from the FBI and from others, NSA maybe, where they're competing for the same dollars or for authorities. And the Labor Department's first TMF project is a done deal. I am pleased to say we returned the loan that we received from TMF as well because we saved the money out of shutting down our printing operations. It's Monday, March 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Defense is filling in its leadership for the Chief Data and Artificial Intelligence Office. DOD Chief Information Officer John Sherman says Margaret Palmieri will be the Deputy CDAO. Sherman says Lieutenant General Michael Groen will add the job of senior military advisor to the CDAO to his Jake leadership duties. John Sherman is a guest on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. More on that in a moment. A $340 million Center of Excellence contract is out from Immigration and Customs Enforcement. ICE calls the contract the Scalable Ways to Implement Flexible Tasks contract. ICE says other DHS components can use the SWIFT contract, too, on a case-by-case basis. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming April 14th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new omnibus spending bill Congress passed includes new cyber requirements, too. Those requirements impact agencies and industry. Ari Schwartz is Managing Director for Cybersecurity at Venable. He's former Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Cybersecurity. Ari, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Walk me through what you've seen in the omnibus that pertains to cyber. What are some of the most important provisions? Welcome. Yeah, well, there's a lot of new spending in this space. And so I think that that is going to be key. And a lot of individual agencies are going to be impacted by that. But I think probably the piece that uh, most of the cybersecurity policy folks are following most closely is the incident reporting. Um, And uh, in particular, there is a new uh, requirement for CISA at DHS to uh, get critical infrastructure to report, to have reports uh, within three days um, from from the critical different critical infrastructure sectors and um, and companies, and then um, one day for ransoms uh, in ransomware cases. Um, and you know, this there's these questions about how this aligns to um, the work that's been done in the executive order already um, that that relates to incident reporting for contractors, um, and then work that the SEC is doing and others as well. What does that mean for agencies or what does it mean for CISA as far as workload, as far as uh, volume that it has to be prepared, all of those things? Well, it's a two-year uh, reg rec process. So we're going to find all of that out, right? This is going to be a, this is a slow burn here uh, in terms of it, what, the meaning for it, but it is going to be very impactful in terms of um, uh, for, for uh, critical infrastructure companies in particular, but also uh, for the agencies that deal with them, for the for agencies that already have reporting requirements for their contractors, agencies that already have reporting requirements um, as regulatory uh, p- pieces, because all these timeframes are different 
periods of time. And how are we going to align this? Are you going to have companies expected to report to seven different places if they have an incident? Um, you're going to spend a lot of time reporting and not much time cleaning up the mess, yeah. right? So uh, that would be a problem. Um, and that's, you point out something that I've noticed in all of these debates that Congress has had about cyber reporting. The window's different on every single one of them. And that strikes me as tremendously counterproductive. Is it as out of whack as it seems to me? Or does that, is that, does that make sense for a practitioner that the, this organization or this, this category would report in this amount of time, this other one would be this other amount of time? There. I think they make that some of them make sense for the type of uh, industry they are, you know, like having 18 hours for uh, downtime for a financial institution that could affect the economy at large is probably realistic. You're not really reporting so much on what the incident was, but the fact that you're down, right. That sort of makes like you're having some rules around that um, make more, a little bit more sense. Um, but uh, I've always chafed a little bit at the uh, specific times because of this. I prefer to say, you know, uh, when you, once you've figured it out, what, you know, who, who's there and you've remediated, uh, then you, you report. But the problem is people weren't reporting. So um, that the, the now there's been this push towards timeframes specifically. And I think that that has made it, uh, makes it a little different. Um, but it, it's also not just the time frame. So it's also now you're required to put these requirements in and now the FBI is out there saying this is going to harm their ability to do law enforcement in these cases uh, because people aren't going to report to them. They're going to report to CISA and CISA is not allowed to share with them. So, um, or without, without consent. So I think there is some, in some cases, so I think there is some uh, um, uh, concern uh, about that. There's some of those pieces as well. You make a good point too, that I'm not sure we've talked about a lot broadly in the community, not just on this program, Ari. And that is if the requirement is that you have to report within three days and you don't know anything really yet about the attack within three days, is there's value, of course, in knowing that the attack happened, but is there a lot of value in knowing that the attack happened if the organization that was attacked doesn't know anything about it yet, hasn't had time to really assess it? I think the feeling from, from DHS is that there is value because they're dealing with critical infrastructure. They want to know if they see three or four of these in the same sector, they can warn other people in the sector. You may have had this. Just look, look out for this. So I think there is, I understand where they're coming from. On the other hand, there is potential harm. We've seen in a lot of cases, OPM being the big one, where we where there has to be a report to Congress within a certain period of time from an agency. Um, and they report. And then the, the Congress wants to know more constantly. They start giving them more details as they learn them. Those details change, right? Because you learn more when you're doing their, their, as you're doing the remediation. And then it gets out there and someone leaks it from the Hill and it gets out there. Uh, oh, they thought this was 100,000 people. Now it's a million and it's 10 million. And, you know, well, yeah, that's what doing the, the incident response looks like, right? Is that you're figuring out the size of it as you go along and what you're doing. But um, it's not that they don't have it under control or they didn't know that it was necessarily that big. But if you're requiring reporting on what you actually know today, that can be problematic if some of it starts to leak out um, and makes your ability to do response harder, especially if the bad guys are in there and they know that you're looking, which in some of the public reporting piece of this, which is not so much in the omnibus, but some of these other ones, um, I think 
um, they have to work that out in the regs, how that, how that's going to work. Because if the bad guys know, then, and you're telling them, we, we know, we know you're in here, they're just going to dig deeper and it's going to be harder to get them out. So the CISA item that jumped out at me in the omnibus, Ari, is the fact just that they're going to get 500 million more dollars in this fiscal year than they did last year. That strikes me as a, ter- a tremendous endorsement, both on the part of Congress and on the part of the administration for what CIS is doing for all of these efforts that you're talking about. Is that a fair observation? On yeah, I think, um, you know, when CISA first started, when, when, uh, when it kind of changed its name and from uh, NPPD to CISA and had more of a cybersecurity focus, there was questions about its competence. And um, it, um, I wouldn't say that there's not still some questions about competence, but I think a lot of it is faded in terms of like uh, people see the path to where they're going. And, there's an acknowledgement we've underinvested in cybersecurity for a long period of time. Um, this is going to be helpful in this process. They're getting more competent. Um, and you see that in the, in the figures here. Uh, my colleague Dave Nitschpier writes at fedscoop.com, an additional $568.7 million compared to fiscal 2021, $460 million more than the White House asked for, total $2.6 billion for CISA. My read of that is that means CISA's arrived, right? Yes, the authorizing their authorizing agencies and their appropriating and their appropriators uh, believe in them, and I think you see that. I think that causes some tension from the FBI and from others, NSA maybe, where they're competing for the same dollars or for authorities. There's some tension there, but um, in general, I think that uh, the appropriators and authorizers did not believe in them before, and they definitely believe in them now. What would smooth that tension out a little bit, Ari, if anything? I mean, maybe that tension is just natural because of the competing interests. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the demonstration of cooperation is helpful. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that, but I think we could see more. I mean, I always said, used to say about DHS that there was this big push anywhere in DHS that um, – Leadership meant that they had to do it themselves, right? But that's not what leadership means in the government. <laughs> I mean, leadership means you get other people to do work, and they help you, and, and and they take the credit for it. But really, you've done the work, right? Like you've convinced them to get involved and do their part, and you're a team, right? Um, and and so if everyone's taking credit and patting each other on the backs, then you know there's worse leadership involved. If it's one agency that wants to do it all on their own. That's not leadership in the government, right? That's uh, uh, the, the territory issue that we see all the time in government. That, that um, yeah, you might have won this battle, but you're not getting to the point of being a true leader. Uh, so, Ari, Ari Schwartz, great to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the budget deal and what's in it in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. On Tuesday's show, the new chief data and artificial intelligence office at the Pentagon is just one topic I'll cover with John Sherman. The Defense Department's chief information officer is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. A successful project completion with money from the Technology Modernization Fund is just one step in the Labor Department's IT modernization journey. Gundeep Alawali is Chief Information Officer at Labor at FedScoop's IT Mod Talks. He says Labor delivers nearly 30 mission areas. So the Department of Labor is uh, uh, it, it does a varied set of mission activities, some 27, 28 uh, 
different mission uh, uh, areas within the Department of Labor. From protecting people's 401ks to inspecting mines, every active mine twice a year uh, for Mine Safety and Health Administration, to processing workman compensation claims for, for 2 million federal employees across the nation, to helping veterans transition from uh, active duty to civilian life, um, to keeping uh, uh, training and apprenticeship programs going across the nation, helping temporary work visas uh, uh, to come into uh, the country at the appropriate time for either agricultural workers or ski resorts or fishing in Alaska. Uh, we touch American workers and try and protect their wages, get them the training that they need. Um, and yes, we also publish the unemployment numbers, which usually hit the news fairly quickly. So as you can see, the Department of Labor is has a lot of varied uh, different uh, program areas that require a, a set of different IT capabilities or digitization capabilities. Um, so when I came to the department about five and a half years ago, uh, the challenge at that time was to understand what uh, uh, each one of these mission areas needs, right? And how do you develop a strategy that can cater to all of these different mission outcomes from an IT perspective, right? I remind my, my staff, we never do IT for the sake of IT. It has to be mission focused, trying to drive outcomes for the American people. So initially what we tried to do was um, in order to devise a effective strategy around digitization, we divided the entire IT portfolio into two different parts. And one is around the commodities of IT, right? Um, the infrastructure, the compute, moving to the cloud, investing in cybersecurity. We didn't have laptops. I, I, was, I was appalled to see eight-year-old laptops when I came in about five and a half years ago. So introducing uh, a leasing program for the first time in the, in the Department of Labor for laptops. Things like Wi-Fi. I remember my daughter refused to come to work with me because there was no Wi-Fi in the building. Uh, so today, uh, about 200 plus uh, uh, locations across the nation have modern capabilities, Wi-Fi, uh, OneDrive, working from anywhere is, is a, a real possibility. Uh, whereas everybody used to rely on on paper notebooks when I joined the department. So it's been culturally liberating and it, it has improved productivity uh, and, and mission outcomes for all of our mission uh, or program areas from a, a simple commodities of IT perspective. So that was one area that was important. And I, and I almost feel like you cannot talk about uh, applications and and emerging technologies, et cetera, uh, unless your basic needs are, are met on the commodities side. So we fixed that, so to speak, over the first two to three years. And I would say because of those investments we made, uh, we, we fared very, very well 
during the pandemic as well. I mean, we've onboarded more than 3,000 employees and, and contractors uh, remotely, um, including a presidential transition uh, during the middle of the pandemic. And if we had not made all these investments, we would not have distribution centers and uh, for laptops across the nation, et cetera. And uh, the smooth operations and mission delivery of the department would have been hindered during the pandemic. So uh, that is a little bit on the commodities side. The strategy on the, on the application side also required a lot of uh, collaboration with mission areas and, 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 and a varied uh, um, uh, set of tools to be applied to it. Um, for instance, I mean, we, from statistical work to uh, claim processing work to um, um, effective web applications, we needed a, a lot of things to cater to the different uh, areas. What we tried to do is apply a set of objective criteria so that uh, we have a top 50 target list. Uh, and then we started chipping away at that top 50 list. Uh, over a period of time over the last few years. And we continue to do that. It's a, it's, a, it's a work in progress. In order to do all of this work, I think what is extremely important and what people often forget is uh, the fact that you need money and you need resources. Uh, so we deployed a multi-pronged approach to funding our modernization strategy as well. Um, so we obviously get a direct appropriation from Congress for IT, and we obviously try to expand that appropriation as much as possible to feed uh, the IT modernization uh, and or digitization efforts. Uh, secondly, we leveraged Modernizing Government Technology Act, the MGTA that was passed a few years ago in setting up the IT Working Capital Fund and uh, leveraging that capability in conjunction with what is called as the Expiring Funds Authority, where we can sweep expiring funds for doing IT modernization projects. Um, that was another strategy that we deployed in order to improve our velocity of digitization in the department. And I said top 50 was a long list, uh, but we were chipping away at it using multiple different uh, uh, funding tools or mechanisms. The third one, which we went aggressively after, was the Technology Modernization Fund. Uh, this was also a key part of our strategy. Um, we were one of the first four agencies who got the TMF funding um, a, a few years ago and applied it on the temp, uh, temp worker visa program that I was talking about earlier. So we, uh, uh, th th there's a temp worker visa program which transcends Department of Labor, Depart uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security, USCIS, CBP, and the Department of State. So it is sort of fragmented across these uh, uh, various organizations. Um, I, am, I am very pleased to report that we got that TMF funding and before the pandemic, we had digitized that entire process 
um, and none of the operations were affected. In fact, our, we did not need our printing operations anymore because now the employers get their digital labor certificates uh, via email and a copy of that is sent to uh, the uh, USCIS and it works uh, seamlessly, which it would not, would, would not have, right? Because we were for longest time mailing these uh, uh, labor certificates on currency-like paper through snail mail to various employers. So that's one success. I am pleased to say we returned the loan that we received from TMF as well, because we saved money out of uh, shutting down our printing operations. So that is one proud moment for the department. I came through that temp worker program myself, immigrated to this, this country. So it's a, it's a personally uh, fulfilling task for me as well. Uh, the second application we made to the Technology Modernization Fund is to uh, invest in our data infrastructure. Um, like many of my colleagues say, we are data rich, but information poor sometimes. So this technology modernization fund uh, um, loan that has been afforded to the department will be utilized to turn that data into meaningful information, break the silos and serve it to the right person at the right time in a secure manner without infringing on people's privacy, right? So what do I mean by that? If a, there is an investigator who is investigating a particular work site, they need to have the inspection history of that work site. They need to know what other enforcement agencies uh, um, um, violations are there, right? They need to understand what the risk profiles are. And, and similar things need to happen uh, in, in let's say our veterans returning back from uh, uh, from active duty for for our transition assistance program, right? They need to have the right uh, um, uh, apprenticeships available to them. If somebody's a helicopter engine uh, a mechanic, on the way back they should know uh, what kind of apprenticeship or job opportunities may be available to them as they transition back into civilian life. So that's what I mean by liberating information and serving it to the right person at the right time. We want to put our data sets uh, to be publicly available uh, as well. So I think that TMF funding uh, has been great for us. We have applied for uh, more TMF fund, uh, funds in, in, in the near future for cybersecurity, for our accessibility and 508 efforts and other efforts as well. So that's been the three-pronged approach around uh, funding our, uh, our, uh, our digitization strategy. Uh, I, I'll spend a little bit of time on cybersecurity. Um, I know all of our efforts are mission-focused and, and uh, uh, mission outcomes are extremely important, but given the current geopolitical situation, cybersecurity cannot be ignored. Uh, I think the cyber executive order actually is going to accelerate and act as a catalyst towards making cybersecurity better. But like our digitization and modernization strategy, we have been running cybersecurity as a marathon and not a sprint, right? Um, I always say that all of these activities are not once and done. 
They are a continuous activity. And also they cannot be treated like, oh, something happened, now we have to respond to it. So let's print uh, a solution. These things have to be run like a marathon. And that's what we've been doing with cybersecurity as well. We've improved our cyber posture. Uh, we've introduced uh, a 24-7 SOC uh, um, into the ecosystem. We've introduced new tools for data loss prevention. We've invested in our zero trust architecture. Uh, these are all improvements that secure our ability to do mission delivery uh, and, and, and make sure that none of the adversaries who are constantly attacking us. We, uh, an estimate of my team was giving me the other day is we get about 300 million attacks in a month uh, or potential attacks uh, in, a, in a month uh, from, from a cybersecurity perspective. So you can imagine uh, why these investments are necessary and it has to be made as a companion to our digitization strategy. Uh, as well. Let me talk a little bit about emerging tech. We have invested in uh, robotic process automation, artificial intelligence, and many of these new emerging techs uh, uh, to, to liberate our, uh, our, our very highly skilled, highly paid staff from doing low value work to high value work. Uh, we've recently deployed about four uh, bots in our procurement, HR uh, arena, and uh, it has saved thousands and thousands of hours for uh, that staff who were manually conducting uh, a responsibility determination, which is a procurement term, um, or uh, reconciling digital, cert, uh, 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 digital signatures on performance plans for people, um, or um, reconciling travel receipts with the uh, vouchers, et cetera. And those kind of things have started happening. We're taking a very considered uh, or a very deliberate approach in introducing emerging tech, because I think it is important for us to keep an eye on uh, governance and maintaining that tech uh, and keeping it relevant. Because putting a bot out is easy, uh, but making sure it never breaks uh, so that and and and, and is, is able to cope with all of the upgrades, et cetera, uh, is extremely important as well. So merging technology is another area that we have invested, and we will continue to invest in for better mission outcomes. Um, last, I wanted to touch a little bit about uh, work culture. I think, we have realized that we are only as strong as our people. We are the Department of Labor uh, and OCIO can only be successful in delivering, uh, um, in delivering positive outcomes if we have the skill sets for the future, if we have the diversity, the thought diversity uh, in, 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 uh, uh, in our organization, uh, if we have the training to keep up our skills, um, and we develop a culture of psychological safety is what I call, uh, where no idea is a bad one, right? All ideas are welcomed. And that is a culture that we have been uh, trying to build over a period of time. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly proud uh, the, uh, in the 2210 series, which is the IT series 
the federal uh, um, average is, is about 10, 15 points lower of women in tech than we have at the Department of Labor or CIO. So this, this has been a, a, a considered uh, effort uh, and we have um, a, a lot more uh, diversity, gender diversity in OCIO at this point in time than we had five years ago. And we continue to build, build on that. And like I said, competence uh, and um, uh, um, thought diversity are the bedrocks in that arena. Um, I will close out by saying that all of these things uh, culminate and are visible in our FITARA scores as well. I remember five and a half years ago, we had an overall score of about a D. Uh, and now we have uh, out of the eight categories, uh, out of the seven categories, we have five A's and two B's, which, is, which has been very fulfilling. So not only are we making progress internally, we are making progress on delivering value for the American people through our programs, but it is becoming visible in the way we are measured by Congress, by GAO, in our external FITARA scorecards as well. So it's been a very fulfilling journey for me. And I, um, I, I, I thank all my colleagues within OCIO who are integral to this success and all the DOL uh, leaders and, and users across the nation who make, our, uh, who make this a, a success. The Chief Information Officer at the Labor Department, Gundeep Alawalia at IT Mod Talks. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, the Chief Information Officer at the Pentagon, John Sherman. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. 